Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Invisible Hate. I'm Masoud Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. And it's June 1986 in a rough Boston neighborhood. Three white boys between the ages of 13 and 15 named Mark, Michael, and Derek are trolling the streets on their bicycles. They stop a 12-year-old black kid named Jesse who is heading home on foot with his siblings. The three white boys start throwing rocks at the siblings, yelling, kill the N-word. The following day, Jesse is at a local beach with his fourth grade class when he happens to see the same three boys. Those three boys in turn notice Jesse. They start chasing, harassing, and throwing rocks not only at Jesse, but his entire elementary school class, including the teacher. Two girls in the class are hit by the rocks. Almost two years later, one of the boys, Mark, comes across a Vietnamese man outside a liquor store. The man is carrying two cases of beer, which Mark and his friends want. Mark yells slurs at the man and cracks open his head with a five-foot wooden stick, rendering him unconscious and breaking the stick in two. The boys flee and a few minutes later approach a different Vietnamese man who Mark punches in the eye. Mark is arrested that night. He's high and he's yelling anti-Asian slurs. He openly admits to being the one who split open, quote, that motherfucker's head. Mark will go on to become an Oscar-nominated actor and one of the most popular celebrities in the world. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Sadia and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these unfortunate situations, whether or not these transgressions can be considered hate crimes. As will soon become clear, today's case appears to fit many of the criteria for a hate crime. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. How are you doing, Asad? I'm doing well, Sadia. You know what's on top of my mind right now? What? Is we are traveling back to Boston for the weekend to visit family. And we are traveling on Alaska Airlines. And, you know, when we're recording this, it's about a couple days after this incident where the side of the airplane blew off for Alaska Airlines. Did you hear about this story? No, I didn't. And you shouldn't have told me. I said, I am oh, yeah. so scared of flying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You don't like flying. Yeah, sadly. So a plane that was leaving Portland was about 20 minutes into their flight and a window panel blew out 
and, oh my and gosh. A, a kid that was sitting in the middle seat, his sh- shirt ripped off his body and went out the window. And they had an emergency landing. And now all the Boeing's new jets are being inspected and they're finding all sorts of faults with them in terms of like screws not being tight enough. And this is a brand new airplane, Sadia, that just got off the assembly line and certified like two months ago. So like the whole airline industry is kind of... <laughs> <laughs> like, what is going on? This um, is so, yeah. so bad, Asit. And I'm traveling to Pakistan in March. Oh, so you can check to see if oh my gosh. you're going to be on one of the airplanes. I imagine that the airplanes that you're taking to go to Pakistan will be a lot bigger and not one of these new ones. I don't know, Asit. I'm going to take Benadryl or, or just take some medication <laughs> and doze and off. Don't sit in the window seat. <laughs> and you're right, not sit there. And make sure you're seatbelt is on because <laughs> so they found the door in someone's backyard it wasn't even a door it was a panel and then you know when it happened all this stuff fell out of the plane including people's like cell phones and stuff and they they saw a story where someone's cell phone survived the drop from the airplane to the ground and that's was so still working terrible yeah crazy but anyway so that's that's what i'm worried about this week is getting on an alaska airlines flight how about you If I were you, I would have canceled my plans because I'm so scared, like shit scared. Yeah, I have enough faith in the industry that (laughs) that it'll it'll be okay. But it's definitely nerve wracking. And I definitely won't be sitting in the window seat. But, you know, we'll be going with Isha. So it's like, you know, she's not tethered to anything. So I'll just have to hold her really tight, I guess. (laughs) Anyway, Sally, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Asit. I think I've mentioned this a few times, but Immigrantly is expanding its core offerings. We are adding a lot of new podcasts. So we just released one called Banterly. It's a Gen Z pop culture focused podcast, which is a lot of fun. So Asit, if you haven't listened to it, and if our listeners haven't listened to it, you can find it on all streaming platforms. And we are going to release two more podcasts in the next few months. So really psyched about that. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm, I'm excited. I haven't subscribed and the episodes sound great, uh, though, you know, Sadia, it's Gen Z stuff. So it kind of goes over my head. <laughs> but I think the interactions between the two hosts are really cool. So yeah, definitely recommend that people check it out and uh, see if they like the new podcast. So I said, should we get started? Massachusetts yeah, before we get started, though, have you guessed, Sadia, who this famous Mark is? I have, said, And honestly, as you were narrating this story, I was like, what the fuck? Seriously? I will probably not look at him the same again. Like, this case has changed everything for me, said. Yeah, so the Mark that we are speaking about today, listeners, is Mark Wahlberg, a.k.a. Marky Mark. So back in 1986, Mark Wahlberg is 15 years old, and he spent most of his whole life in Dorchester, a notoriously crime-ridden, working-class neighborhood in Boston. It's the era of busing and segregation, and racial and class tensions are really high. On June 15th, a Sunday, Wahlberg is with two fellow Dorchester friends, Mark Guilfoyle, who's also 15, and Derek Furkart, who is 13. 
the boys notice Jesse Coleman walking with his older siblings through Savin Hill, an almost exclusively white section of Dorchester. They call them the N-word and say to Jesse and his siblings that they aren't wanted in the neighborhood. Wahlberg and his friends start throwing rocks at them while also yelling, quote, kill the N-word. The Colemans run into a local Burger King for safety. Meanwhile, Mark and his friends leave the area. The next day is the final Monday of the school year. And, you know, despite his age, Jesse is actually in the fourth grade at the elementary school in Dorchester. It's such a nice day out that Jesse's teacher decides to treat her class to recess at the nearby beach called the Savin Hill Beach. On the way over, Jesse notices Mark Wahlberg and his two same buddies on the street and remarks to his teacher that they're not nice. And the boys then begin to verbally attack and chase the entire fourth grade class, which, by the way, is mostly black. As they are running, Wahlberg and his friends see several other friends gathered on a nearby porch and the group of harassers grow. So now there's like a little gang. They all begin throwing rocks again, hitting two girls, one black and one white. The teacher flags down a passing ambulance. That driver makes a call for help with his radio. And then he drives the ambulance at the boys until they run away. The incident is then reported back at the school, as is Wahlberg, who one of the children recognized, police investigate, and two months later, arrests are made. Wow, Asad, I keep visualizing him right now. And as I do, I'm getting really angry. Like, I can't imagine attacking a whole fourth grade class, even the teacher there. This is so bizarre and messed up. And that was really just the beginning. We'll touch on what happens to Mark for harassing Jesse in a bit. But let's break down some of the other things that happened that he did as well. So now it's about two years later on April 8th, 1988, Wahlberg and his friends pass a Vietnamese man named Than Van Lam carrying two cases of beer in Dorchester. Many Vietnamese refugees had begun moving into the neighborhood in the 70s, Sadia. So at this time, Wahlberg is high on PCP, which is a hallucinogen and is carrying what's described as a five foot wooden stick or a pole. He then calls Lam a quote Vietnam fucking shit and hits him on the head, knocking him to the ground. Wahlberg and his friends then leave Lam unconscious and start running and soon come across another Vietnamese man, Hoa Trien. Wahlberg punches Trien in the eye. Asad, I don't even know what to say to all of this. Like, I'm thinking this guy is racist. We know that, right? And he doesn't discriminate. He's racist to everyone. Yeah. And he also has anger issues. It's definitely violent. And we've talked about so many times how things go from zero to 100 and so quickly. And it seems like that's the case here. And But Asad, in this case, it's unprovoked. Unprovoked. Yeah, for sure. He just looks at these people and he's like, OK, I don't like them. Yeah. And I will behave this way. That's it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, Sadi, let's talk about another incident that happened. This one less publicized, and it happened about four years later. And this is also at a time when 
Mark Wahlberg's career is kind of on the rise as a rapper. It's April 30th. This time they're at the Dorchester tennis courts. Wahlberg is now 20 and his friend and bodyguard Derek McCall is holding down Robert Crehan, Wahlberg's neighbor, and he's holding him to the ground. Wahlberg then kicks the young man in the face, unprovoked according to a later claim. Crehan suffers facial lacerations and a fractured jaw that has to be wired shut. And so Wahlberg and McCall are charged with battery and assault. So these are all very different incidents, different victims. But one thing is clear that he is prone to violence. He is racist. And the pattern continues right from when he was 15 to now he's 20. Nothing much has changed, Asad. Yeah, you know, and we've talked a lot about, you know, like the actions of a teenager, you know, like a young person. But, you know, this last incident happened when he was clearly an adult, right? Right. Yeah. So, Sadie, we're going to touch a little bit more on the victims in Wahlberg later. But right now, let's take a quick break and then we'll talk about how these incidences played out in court. This episode is made possible by PWC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, we're talking about the kind of early violence in Mark Wahlberg's life. In terms of the incidents are against Jesse and his siblings and Jesse's class, Wahlberg and his friends are found guilty of violating the Massachusetts Civil Code, specifically the code that says that everyone has a right to enjoy places of public accommodation and to travel safely on the public streets free of harassment and intimidation. Wahlberg and Foucault, which again was his friend, settle by something called a consent judgment where they agree to never again harass the Coleman's, the teacher, and the girls hit by the rocks and their families. Two months later, the attorney general files a civil suit with something called a civil rights injunction prohibiting the boys from any future assaults, threats, or intimidation because of race or nationality. I couldn't find any specific charges of a hate crime in court. Guilfoyle, who was the third perpetrator, tries to claim the injunction does not apply to him because he's a juvenile, but he loses that. Meanwhile, Wahlberg's criminal and civil files are sealed because he is a minor. So essentially, this is like the two strikes, you're out hate crime law. Yeah, you know, I think, Salia, I think that's a good way to look at it. We know what follows with his taking that second strike, mm. right? How do you feel about his records being sealed, by the way? Wahlberg is a minor and should be protected. And we are talking about when he was 15, right? Right, And right. making records public can certainly present problems to formerly incarcerated youths trying to acquire work, housing, education, or military service. So I do get when they seal it at 15, but 
I am just a bit on the fence because his indiscretions continue. Yeah, I'm generally okay with it because they were minors at the time. And I think in most cases, I'm going to be okay with it when it happens to minors, though. You know, some people say that open records could be helpful in maintaining some sort of rehabilitation process or at least hold criminals accountable. In this case, Wahlberg who had already achieved some fame in his music career could be susceptible to people continuing to share or even sell his information without much benefit to public safety or his rehabilitation process. I think everybody's going to have a different opinion. I think I fall into the line of because he's a minor at the time, it's better to have things generally sealed. But anyway, back to the court cases. So after Wahlberg victimizes both the Vietnamese men He is arrested by police and proudly admits to the assault of what he called the, quote, slant-eyed gooks. So no shame, no remorse. No shame, no remorse. He's charged with attempted murder and will be tried as an adult. He ends up pleading guilty to two counts of criminal contempt instead for violating the civil rights injunction from Jesse's case. So it's connected to that first case. He claims he was high and that the attacks weren't race-related. Prosecutors, though, claim he exhibits a, quote, continuing pattern of terrorizing people of color who have done nothing to harm him. Absolutely, yes. Essentially, he's found in contempt of court because of the injunction relating to the first case. He's ordered to serve three months of a two-year sentence at the Suffolk County House of Corrections. In actuality, he ends up serving about 45 days, so about half that. So this is so messed up. The amount of violence this guy has perpetrated against innocent civilians... And he gets away with it, like he only serves 45 days. That to me is just so sad and unfair. But then again, you and I have talked about rehabilitation and whether people should be imprisoned or whether there should be other avenues and tools for people to change. So you've covered what went down in court for the incidents against Jesse and the Vietnamese men. What about the assault on the tennis court? So, yes, Adia, the victim there, Robert Crehan, files criminal and civil charges because of the beating. But Wahlberg's attorneys claim that Crehan actually called Wahlberg's friend that was there with him a racial slur. That friend was black, by the way. Wahlberg admits to being at the tennis courts, but says he played no part in the incident and that Crehan is after his money. Crehan actually drops the criminal charges after they reach an out-of-court settlement in a civil suit. I'm confused, Like This time, is he attacking a white man for a slur against a black man? So that's the story his attorneys present, as far as I can tell. There is not a whole lot of information about it because it was settled out of court. It is possible that this really was financially motivated. It certainly gets less attention than Wahlberg's other assaults or alleged assaults as well. So, you know, Sadia, let's go back a little bit now and discuss some background on Wahlberg, as he's not a typical perpetrator, I would say. Mm-hmm. And we'll also circle back to the victims as we talk about his growing fame. So 
Mark Wahlberg grew up in, as I mentioned, this kind of infamous neighborhood of Boston called Dorchester. He was the youngest of nine children. He was bullied by his older siblings growing up. His parents divorced when he was 11 years old, and he was considered small for his age and was always getting into trouble. By 13, he was addicted to cocaine and other drugs, and he actually saw they had dropped out of school in the ninth grade. Very briefly, Mark Wahlberg joined his brother Donnie's boy band called New Kids on the Block. Did you ever listen to them? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I said. I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. Um, I actually had, did not know this fact that he actually bo- joined the band for a little bit, but that obviously didn't work out. But, you know, sadly, soon after he became lead singer in his own band called Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, which had a bunch of hits. Sadly, he actually often rapped about urban violence. Quick as a blink shot sprang out loud and a hail of bullets zipped through the crowd. One hit Tiffany and instantly she died innocently on a wild side. Wahlberg's checkered past doesn't really receive a lot of attention until he finds popularity as a hip-hop artist. Though his stint in prison is very short, I think we mentioned that it was about 45 days, he seems to do like a complete 180 after coming out. He believes he's made terrible mistakes, but paid for them dearly. He says that he, quote, took it upon himself to own up to the mistakes and go against the grain and not be a part of the gang anymore, and to say that he was going to go and do his own thing, which made it 10 times more difficult for him to walk from home to the train station or go to work or go to school. He ends up finding God and becomes a devout Catholic. He begins channeling his energy into various careers, including modeling, acting, producing, and running businesses. He starts a youth foundation, Sadia, and is a supporter of the Dorchester Boys and Girls Club. He becomes a, quote, family man. He begins removing all his tattoos. And then, you know, in the late 90s, he starts to get attention for his role in Boogie Nights and is later nominated for two Oscars. In 2010, he receives a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 2017, he's the world's highest paid actor. He says he applies the past hardships of his life to his acting roles. And, you know, he's tried to give opportunities to other ex-cons, such as movie roles. And so, you know, I think he's done a lot for himself since these early racist incidences. I said all of that is great. And we can see that there is redemption here, right? But I keep thinking, would it be afforded to a person who was non-white? And that's where I feel a bit conflicted with his past. I'm sure he's a reformed man, a family man. But at the same time, I wonder how he would be treated if he were not white. Those are my initial thoughts. I've always been completely open about my past. You know, we've probably had this conversation many times. I've been talking about it for over 25 years since I've been in the public eye. I'm not proud of what I've done. I'm just committed to making sure that I pay for my mistakes and I avoid kids, uh, hopefully uh, help kids avoid making those mistakes. Uh, 
You know, ultimately, Wahlberg manages to stay out of trouble after 1992. He starts acknowledging his CD passed publicly as early as 1991, so before the incident with Crehan. In 1993, his character, though, is questioned again after he fails to denounce offensive comments about gay people on a TV special co-hosted by Shaba Ranks. Wahlberg is immediately the target of protests by two New York-based anti-bias groups, the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence and the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, also known as GLAAD. They call for his removal as the Calvin Klein spokesperson. He then gives an interview to the Boston Globe, asserting he has no hate towards gay people. He goes even further, Sadia, writing a public apology about his past that is delivered uh, on a Times Square billboard that basically takes full accountability for the harassing of the kids on the school trip and assaulting the two Vietnamese men. He also acknowledges that he was intoxicated and he was a teen at those time, but says that's not an excuse and it's not okay to beat up people because your friends are doing it. And so, you know, I think he's doing a lot of the right things at this time to take accountability for, you know, his previous actions. So I can't get over this whole idea of public apology on Times Square billboard. Like, really? That to me is privilege, if I can say that. <laughs> if you and I made mistakes, would we be able to do it? No. I mean, that to me in itself shows how privileged this guy is. And again, I'm not undermining his apology or the journey that he took. I just feel that we give white people too much credit when they apologize or when they recognize their mistakes. And for non-whites, they are held accountable for crimes of others. So that to me is a very unfair equation and calculus that I see in the U.S. So yeah, sure, he is a reformed guy. Good for him. And I hope he really, really believes in it. But it's easier to move past his crimes versus somebody who is not white. I totally hear what you're saying. I think that like because of his stature, his growing career as a musician, actor, model and all that kind of stuff, like I think he was trying to do what he thought was right. And, you know, I think it's similar to when like politicians or someone else takes out a page in the New York Times. Like, yeah, I agree that like, you know, people with less resources and connections can't pull that kind of stuff off. But, you know, I think that the alternative is him doing or saying nothing. And I think I'm okay with him, you know, obviously acknowledging it. I think he says repeatedly that people bring up his past all the time and they keep on writing the same article over and over about it. I mean, obviously we're talking about it now because we're bringing it up now. I mean, do you think it's fair that the media revisits his violent past over and over again? I said for us, at least I can say we are not revisiting it because he is a celebrity. We are talking about this case because it's motivated by hate. And that's the extent of why this case is relevant to at least me. I will say this, you're right. Sometimes uh, we do get caught up in this idea of somebody having all the resources and being privileged. And that's why, you know, getting away with a lot of stuff and not recognizing the honesty or the thought behind their apology or reformation. 
So I'll give him that. But honestly, for you and I, I don't think it's about his celebrity status at all. It's what he did. And it's important for us to bring or talk about crimes that are committed no matter who commits them. I think the most interesting part of kind of this resurgent of his past was back in 2014 when Wahlberg applies for an unconditional pardon to wipe the attack against the two Vietnamese men from his criminal record. So in his statement, he apologizes and says he dedicated himself to becoming a better person. He does not, though, acknowledge any racial bias in the statement that he wrote at the time, though he had previously acknowledged the victim's race in a 1993 written apology. So the then governor of Massachusetts, Governor Patrick, who the Massachusetts Board of Pardons reports to, ignores Mark Wahlberg's request. We have this quote from this guy named Mike Albano, who serves on the governor's council. And he says, quote, the interesting part about this one is if his name was Mark Smith, this would not be controversial at all. He was a youthful offender. He served his time. If you look at his record, the contribution he's made back to the community with veterans and young people, he's a perfect fit for a pardon. And Mark Wahlberg himself admits that a pardon would help him with the expansion of his family's Wahlberger business and also might allow him to be more active with law enforcement to help at-risk people. And, you know, Sadia, many of the victims resurface at this time um, and they get the attention of the press. Because most were minors at the time, some did not know who he was or what he became. Interesting. And so, you know, a lot of them take different positions on the potential pardon. One of the little girls who is hit by the rock, Kristen Atwood, is firmly against it. She says her class was afraid to walk the streets or go to the beach where the attack happened. It was a hate crime, and that's exactly what should be on his record forever. And for him to want to erase it, I just think is wrong. And you know, Sadia, another one of the victims said, quote, a racist will always be a racist. Do you agree with that, Sadia? Do you think that a racist is always a racist? I said, I feel like I cannot judge somebody else's intention. So I'm sure people find ways to redeem themselves and we all make mistakes. I'm sure all of us have acted in ways that were not right in many ways previously and we've learned from it and there's always room for introspection and reformation. So to me, a racist will always be a racist is a bit much. So yeah, I don't think we should judge people like that because then we don't allow them to work on themselves, basically. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great, great point. So back to his victims and the pardon. The former fourth grade teacher thinks everyone should be forgiven at some point, saying, and I quote, Mark Wahlberg has really made something of himself and should be commended. Lots of the kids in his situation would have just ended up in jail. All the same, she thinks a personal apology to herself and his other victims, as well as an acknowledgement for who he was then, is called for. One of the Vietnamese victims, Trin, says that he hopes Wahlberg receives the pardon. He notes that the assault did not cause him serious harm and that he had no idea his attacker had become famous. He'd like to meet Wahlberg and forgive him in person. And then, you know, Sadia, it actually happens that Wahlberg does end up meeting with 
Trin and his family in 2016 and apologizes. Trin releases a public statement forgiving him. And then finally, Savia, one of the former prosecutors, Judith Beals, weighs in. She cites Wahlberg's undifferentiated bigotry and lack of control at the time. And she says she rarely, if ever, saw another violation of a civil rights injunction and does not think Wahlberg owned up to the crimes being racially motivated. Here she is. And it was not just that he had violated it, but the second time was more violent and was towards a different class of individuals, Vietnamese individuals. And so anyway, Sadia, what ends up happening is that Wahlberg drops the request for the pardon in 2016. He later states he was encouraged to apply and regrets doing it. Let's take a quick break again, and when we come back, we'll talk about our main discussion, whether Marky Mark's actions should be considered a hate crime. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. Sadia, so Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg, his actions as a late teen, early adult, should we consider these hate crimes? Absolutely, Asad. He attacked multiple people. Uh, most of his attacks are against minority groups with hateful language and increase in violence. He clearly uses derogatory and discriminatory language. I also think he hasn't really owned up to that. And I just want to go back to his need to be pardoned. Why is that important, right? If he has asked people for forgiveness and if he has forgiven himself he should move on in fact i think it's important that his record remains as is as a reminder of the pain that he inflicted on so many people so yeah to me these are absolutely hate crimes and i hope that if he hasn't still he owns up and apologizes and reconciles yeah, I, I would agree. I think certainly the first two incidences uh, were, uh, were and should be considered hate crimes. I think the third one is questionable. I don't think we know enough details to really know whether that was motivated by hate, or, but certainly, you know, it was violent and, you know, how much he was involved in it, um, it's unclear. But yeah, you know, I think, Sadia, like for me, this story is about change and redemption and like doing what the prosecutor said or what the teacher said was like, yeah, so many other people in the same situation would go on to just end up in jail. And yeah, he's done well in his life. And I think he's tried to give back. It does make me look at him differently, you know, knowing this about him. And, you know, I think maybe a question for you uh, or maybe a question to the audience, like what would you have wanted him to do more in order to redeem himself for what he did when he was so young? Yeah, Asit, but to your point, our judicial system does not treat everybody equally, although it is supposed to on paper. So would others be incriminated the same way that he was? Um, we give him a lot of credit that when he came out of jail, he was a reformed person. But then he was in jail for only 45 days. So to me, there are so many other factors to consider before we give him credit for who he is now. A lot of those opportunities, a lot of benefit of the doubt is not afforded 
to minorities. So we have to keep that in mind before we give him credit. And again, this is not to take credit away from him, but just to add that caveat. So Sally, I found this interesting quote from that prosecutor, Prosecutor Beals, about the importance of pursuing charges for hate crimes. Take a listen. Uh, first of all, is the nature of the crimes. Back in the 1980s, I think it's important to remember it was a racially charged period in Boston's history, and hate crimes were were not infrequent. Um, but this one, from the very beginning, stood out uh, in the Attorney General's office. We sought an injunction. He was ordered to stop racial harassment in the city of Boston. That was treated very seriously, and he unlike any other defendants that came across our came across the attorney general's office actually violated that injunction a couple of years later but the distinctive thing about hate crimes is that they send a message to entire communities of people that you are not safe you are not welcome and there is nothing you can do about it so these crimes are really quite different in terms of nature and they beget if they're not if they're not addressed they beget other forms of bigotry and violence as well so I said, where do those involved stand now? Yeah, so we've touched a lot on the victims that we know about, many of whom were minors at the time. A lot were certainly terrorized, but ultimately moved past these events. One thing I should note is that, you know, that other perpetrator, Guilfoyle, actually became a lieutenant in the Boston Fire Department. And when approached by the media, Guilfoyle stressed that the attack on the school group had occurred when he was a juvenile and, you know, He's obviously grown since then. Meanwhile, Wahlberg is still an incredibly successful actor, as most people probably know, and he owns several businesses, a major Hollywood producer. He continues to credit God and his wife for turning his life around and making him a better person. He got his GED at 42, and he actually recently left Los Angeles to go move to Nevada with his family and give his four kids a better life. A better life in Nevada? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he says he's not involved in that kind of Hollywood scene anymore and actually lives a pretty boring, disciplined life, allegedly waking up at 2.30 in the morning every day in order to work out and pray. He, I feel like you go to bed at 2.30, Sadia, so it's just like I do. <laughs> completely different life, you and Mark Wahlberg. But Maybe I should move to Nevada. To yeah, myself. that's true. So, yeah, he seems, you know, incredibly diligent and disciplined in what he does. So let's conclude with this quote from Mark Wahlberg, and that is, I have not engaged in philanthropic efforts in order to make people forget about my past. On the contrary, I want people to remember my past so that I can serve as an example of how lives can be turned around and how people can be redeemed. Thank you so much for listening to Invisible Heat. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about this case or any other case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisibleheatpodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Lindsay Gamble, Emmanuel Monahan, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Asad Bhatt. And I'm Sadia Khan. Invisible Hate.